come discover over 60 artists and groups from 14 countries, including Justin Adams and Jalda Kamara, The Weaker Thans, Iron and Wine, Great Lake Swimmers, and gospel legend Mavis Staples. Tickets and information available online at www.thefestival.bc.ca and outlets throughout the city. Good afternoon, everyone out there. My name is Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, July 8th, 2009. I have got an amazing show for you. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not one to necessarily pat myself on the back in public, but really, things have come together today, uh, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to go top to tail with lots of interesting people to talk to and interesting music to listen to this week. I've got an interview with Dan Mangan, Vancouver's very own folk rocker who uh, spoke to me just moments ago on the phone, and he'll be performing at this year's Vancouver Folk Festival. That's from the 17th to the 19th. I'm also going to be chatting with uh, Jordi Yao, who is the editor of the Discorder magazine, which has been refurbished entirely a whole new shape and a whole new website. So we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show. I'm also going to catch up with Donna Spencer, who's the producer behind the Dancing on the Edge Festival, which opens this Thursday and is showcasing dancing talent from across Vancouver and across Canada. So it's going to be a great show, and I hope you stay tuned throughout the next hour to the Arts Report with me here on CITR. All right. So Dan Mangan, I'm, I don't know how many of you have heard of him before. We've been playing his uh, new EP uh, <laughs> pretty much nonstop since it came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called Robots. But Dan Mangan is a folk artist who is hails from Vancouver, and he'll be performing at next week's Vancouver Folk Festival. I had a chance to speak with Dan on the phone just a little earlier today, and we talked about Folk Fest, we talked about beginnings, musical inspirations, and a whole lot more. Here's my chat with Dan Mangan. I hope you enjoy it. And I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, I'm happy to say that I will be performing at the Folk Festival in my hometown in just a couple of uh, weeks, days, whenever you're hearing this, it may change. Yes. Uh, so if someone were to ask you, Dan, where your folk hail from, would, yeah. you say, would this be the place, Vancouver? Yeah, I mean, I, I've done certainly most of my, uh, my gestating here in Vancouver. Uh, I've lived a little bit in Ontario, and I was actually born way up north in Smithers, B.C., uh, Crazy. where my family was living very briefly. And uh, so I've seen a lot of the country. I've lived in different parts of the country. But Vancouver is definitely home, and every time I'm kind of, you know, returning from a tour or something, and you fly over the mountains, and you kind of come in over, you know, Richmond, that you're, mm-hmm. you're always reminded why it is home. Absolutely. One of the most beautiful places to live in Canada, I would say. Yeah, I've, I've had a hard time finding any place, any other, you know, kind of metropolis city uh, in the world that ranks with Vancouver in terms of just pure aesthetic beauty. I mean, there are cities that culturally are, are you know, a little more impressive than Vancouver, but uh, just in terms of pure kind of the uh, closeness to nature and yet the closeness to every amenity that metropolis kind of cities offer, it's pretty stunning. 
Yeah, I mean, I can't remember who it was who said this, but someone once said that how can anyone living in this city, even if it's the most drizzly, re dreary, rainy day, if you're on the highway and you can still see the mountains and you can still see the ocean, if, yeah. if you're stuck in, stuck in traffic, you yeah. can't be upset about where you're at. And I don't even mind the rain. I mean, maybe it's just because I spent so much time here as a kid and it makes me feel kind of nostalgic, but... You know, the kind of rain that we get here is just so light. I don't I don't even own an umbrella. You know, I've lived in really? this town forever, and I just I just don't even bother. I mean, I have, you know, a windbreaker, and that's mm -hmm. usually enough. And you, you kind of get used to just showing up places a little bit dewy, you know, right. and then, but within 10 minutes you're dragging. So, I mean, I, you know, I've spent enough time in Toronto to know that their kind of sudden torrential downpours actually do a lot more damage <laughs> to your, uh, you know, your kind of uh, daily fashion than uh, than the rain here does, I think. Absolutely. People get a little bit turned off of the gray, but it uh, doesn't really bother me. Yeah, as long as it, you can get past the gray, I think that it's not even an issue. Exactly. Well, and, and the you know there is so much green that it counteracts the it's gray. It's true. It trumps the gray, <laughs> and the gray no longer has any power because of the green. Exactly. So, um, as a kid, did you ever go to any of the the folk festivals? The folk festival is now twenty thirty two years old. Yeah. No, I totally did. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of been. You know, I, I I can't really claim that it's been like the every year of my life kind of thing, but we've definitely, it's been part of the summer kind of festivities of the, of the family, and there was, you know, there's a bunch of things, there's always the children's festival, and yeah. I remember kind of going to Granville Island and stuff, and uh, Jericho Beach, you know, every time I'm down on Jericho Beach, I kind of feel like, even if it's not the folk festival, I still feel like I'm going to the folk festival, um, and it's been, you know, it, it is one of those things that kind of helps mold and shape young minds, and um uh, I think in a good way in terms of just kind of being open to all kinds of different kinds of music that happen at folk festivals. And Absolutely. I was talking to the artistic director of the festival, Linda Tanaka, earlier today, and she was super excited that she's got groups coming in from all over the world, Mavis Staples, a bunch of like headliner headliners, but the wonderful thing she said about the festival is that everyone gets to listen to each other and interact with each other and it's not just about like banjo music or harmonica music it's Absolutely, just about yeah. sharing sound I remember even just like a couple of years back going and I'd never heard it's maybe about five six years ago I went and I'd never heard any spoken word performed really and um, I heard Mike McGee from uh, San Jose performing and I was just blown away and mm -hmm. ever since that time you know, I've since been introduced to the spoken word scene in Vancouver, and I've actually done a lot of collaborating with different artists um, who kind of operate in that realm. And, uh, I, you know, I, I had no idea that Vancouver has one of the most vibrant spoken word communities in, you know, North America, really. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to Dubai Young is going to be totally. performing, and she's one of Canada's, uh, I would say, one of our, like, superstars of uh, spoken word. So. Yeah, no, and there's some incredible talent out there. I mean, there's Shane Koizan and the Fugitives and... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the list goes on. There's, there's a lot of people really making names for themselves in Canada. And, uh, and, and that, you know, that was just one example of me being introduced to something that I'd never really been a part of before. And it happened at the Folk Festival. And, you know, Ridley Bent, you know, when he went through his kind of hick-hop phase, <laughs> you know. And it's a lot of interesting stuff. And, and in a sense, it all kind of, even though it's very different genre-wise, you, you still get the same kind of feel um, that folk music does. And that's that you know, very heavy uh, focus on lyricism and kind of that, you know, uh, power of words and mm -hmm. power of... Uh, Storytelling, know, I find a lot of instruments times. Instruments and oh, storytelling, yeah. yeah, of course. 
So is there anyone you are looking forward to he- seeing or meeting or hearing at oh, this year's yeah. festival? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm excited to see Iron and Wine, mm-hmm. and uh, Arrested Development should be a trip. Uh, I'm really excited. I actually just found out today that, uh, you know, I get the opportunity to do some workshops with um, some incredible artists, like oh, really? uh, Great Lake Swimmers and... Uh, and a very good friend of mine, Mark Berube, from, mm-hmm. who's now living in Montreal, but he lived in Vancouver for many years. Right. Um, and we've done a lot of touring and playing together, so that should be fun. And Stephen Page. and There's just a lot of, you know, kind of opportunity to interact with these artists that, uh, that these kinds of festivals bring. And, it, and because it's on such a, a level playing field and everyone just kind of has, you know, a, a weekend to kill mm-hmm. in this town. I mean, most of the artists who are coming to perform have basically blocked off time to be here for the entire festival. So there's a lot of time to just kind of hang out and actually get to know different artists from different parts of the world. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, you know, more than anything, it's just a community-building exercise both for the uh, general public and for the artists involved. Well, that leads really well into uh, my next question, which was going to be if you could do a duet or if you could perform live at the festival with any folk legend, alive or dead, <laughs> who would you pick to sing with and what song would you sing? Oh, man. <laughs> One of those questions where no matter what you say, you're going to think later, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> of course. Um, There's I, no- I would be pretty stoked to... Uh, that was a very Californian word. I just. <laughs> uh, I would, it's okay. We're on the West Coast. Yeah, that's right. I would be very, very excited to uh, you know do something with Jeff Tweedy or or, mm-hmm. or, or Wilco in general. Or mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's a lot of folk legends out there that uh, dead or alive. I mean, Nick Drake and yeah, Guthrie and Dylan and there's there's a lot of people out there who really you know um, defined a, a, a kind of genre that uh, now exists very uh, plain, plainly in our culture. Absolutely. Were those the kind of artists that you were listening to growing up, or, or how did you come to finding the sound that you have found that's so distinct? And, I mean, all the reviews that, you, uh, that I have read so far of you always talks about your gravelly and really <laughs> distinctive voice. But, I mean, where did that you get your sound? Voice. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I don't... I, when I was a kid, you know, I, uh, me and my brother and my sister used to rifle through our parents' record collection and just put on you know, whatever had the coolest cover mm. and then like jump around on the furniture when they weren't home and, mm-hmm. you know, pretend that we were a band and stuff like that. And then we were in the car, uh, you know, our parents would play a lot of Van Morrison and Paul Simon and stuff that they were into. And uh, I think, you know, the kind of, uh, I, I definitely heard a lot of Van Morrison when I was a kid and that, mm-hmm. that was a bit of a defining kind of sound. Um, and then as, as I got older, you know, there was a lot of stuff that started to infiltrate that, you know, it was kind of a teen during the grunge years. And right. Um, and then, you know, I kind of got whapped over the head at about 14 years old by Radiohead and I've hmm. been pretty, you know, kind of obsessed with that band ever since. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sound nothing at all <laughs> like Radiohead. I mean, no. compared <laughs> our music together, it would become, you know, different worlds. But, uh, I think it would, you know, I'd be, I'd be lying to say that I wasn't, uh, inspired and influenced by them in other ways. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing to kind of grow up and start to play stages and then have these opportunities to go and play with people who you were listening to when you were a kid. Absolutely. Um, a random offside comment. Um, I, in some of my uh, 
internet poking around about you and your your forthcoming album, which is coming out next month. Uh, I actually found out that uh, Robots is now available as a cell phone ringtone. Oh, really? Did you know that? I did not know that. <laughs> um, yeah, so people can download the um, the Robots ringtone, and I'm just wondering, wouldn't what would how would you respond if you happen to be standing in line at I don't know the grocery store or the bank, and then suddenly your song comes across on someone's cell phone? That would be really weird. I don't I don't know what I would do. I, I think I would pretend that I had never heard it before and. Uh, and can, you know, kind of go about my business trying to smirk. <laughs> I, uh, um, that is bizarre. Actually, uh, a friend uh, text messaged me the other day saying they were driving on the number one, mm -hmm. and the car ahead of them, uh, you know, you, you know, when a car gets dirty and people write in the dirt on the yeah. back of the windshield, had written robots need love too on the back of the car. No way, cool. <laughs> so he's texting me, man. <laughs> no, I can't believe what I what I saw in the car. Oh. Um, so, you know, it's bizarre. Uh, I had no idea that it was a ringtone. I don't even mm -hmm. know, uh, you know, clearly someone else is getting paid for that. But well, <laughs> well, I hope some of the money trickles, trickles, trickles back down at least. Yeah, I don't know how all that works. But my last question also has to do with the, the robot song, which is not the one I'm going to play on the radio today, but sure. um, uh, it's the fact that it's a sing-along song. And I'm just wondering, there's... all. I've always found sing-along moments really sort of magical in, in close concert, concert spaces. And I'm just wondering what it's like to have a song that is so, in, like, it's intensely sing-alongable. And <laughs> what it's like for you being up there on stage and hearing so many voices singing with you. It's, free, it's pretty neat. Um, and uh, I don't know what it is about the song. There's a kind of, like, uh, 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 chromatic nature to the melody that I mm -hmm. think is intrinsically pretty familiar to, to human beings. Um, it is really amazing. Um, I, I think that there's always that moment when anyone's in a crowd and, you know, they kind of have to decide, like, whether or not they are, they are into what's happening. And, you know, if you sing and you sing along with what's happening, then you're showing the people around you that you approve of this concert. And, you know, it's this kind of... Uh, this, uh, everyone's very self-conscious about singing in public mm -hmm. because, you know, if your friends see you singing, then that's, you know, I don't you know, all that kind of stuff. And generally, the times when that song goes over the best is when it's really clear that everyone in the room is just completely given up on worrying about their inhibitions. Right. And, um, you know, we usually, you know, leave it till the end of the set. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been really magical. And, and you know, the, the, the trying thing as an artist is how do you make something that you do every night um, unique and you don't want it to be a gimmick and you don't want it to be like this kind of thing that you do and um, you know I, I've never been really been a fan of people who tell the same stories every night on a tour and right. stuff like that I just you know there's something disingenuous about that and um, and so with that song it's you know it, it's this kind of there's that nagging thing of like oh well if everyone's expecting it does it you know but it doesn't really matter. It, it, it's just, it, it's kind of a, a bit of a celebration at the end. I used to end a set with a, you know, sometimes with like a really sad song or something. Mm -hmm. And even if people really enjoyed the set, uh, then they left feeling sad. <laughs> and, wow. this, the, you know, the song is a bit of a celebration and it's kind of this mm -hmm. tongue-in-cheek um, tagline. And generally, it's, it, it's a lot of fun. It's still really fun for me to do it. And, um, you know, when the response comes back and everyone's singing along, it's, um, I don't, don't really know how to describe it. It's pretty magical, uh, like you said. I mean, that was the word you used. And well, it's, 
it's definitely one of those songs that even on even when I'm sitting here in my in my studio or in my bedroom, like you just want to join in, and I, I <laughs> well, you should. I'm, I was I'm wondering whether or not you know that when you're writing it, when suddenly the the, the tune comes to you, and and you're like, hmm, this is this is going to be a a good good moment. Yeah, it was interesting because it was actually written a few years ago, and I had the opportunity to kind of screen test it on you know like. Uh, dozens and dozens, dozens of crowds before mm -hmm. it was ever recorded, and um, it was interesting how that experience of playing it live so many times before I recorded it changed the way that the song sounded and the way that I went about it. And, really? Um, and it's you know it's it's uh, there's just uh, something that I stumbled upon, and you know, and, and a lot of the times with songwriting, I just kind of you know, you don't really know where it comes from, and you just kind of think, oh, I don't know, you know, that phrase or whatever. And mm -hmm. um, with that melody and with that, that tagline, it's really absurd. Like, it's kind <laughs> of, a, you know, it's like the silliest lyric on the, on the album, and it's so ridiculous. And sometimes I, I, I think of the song, and I'm like, you know, like, well, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, was, you know, it, this is so bizarre, but... Um, but it works. Yeah, for some reason, it seems to work. And, you know, for that, I'm... Uh, really, really thankful. I've, you know, I've been a very fortunate individual in the last couple of years with some really great experiences and opportunities, and mm. that's just one more thing that I need to uh, count when I'm counting <laughs> the blessings. You know. Fair enough. Well, I know you've been traveling pretty much nonstop for what, about the last six months, and we're so happy to have you coming back to Vancouver to perform <laughs> in the Folk Fest. And I really appreciate you talking to me today. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No problem at all. That was my conversation with Dan Mangan earlier today. I really appreciate, as I said, being able to talk to him. And I may play that robot song that we were discussing a little later in the show, but instead of that one, which you can hear all the time playing on a CITR here, I'm going to play a new one off of his album, which is called Nice Nice Very Nice. It's coming out in August, so next month. But I'm sure if you head on down to Jericho Beach Park next weekend uh, and to the Folk Festival, you'll hear some tidbits from the excellent sounding album so far. But uh, this is one track that wasn't on his recent EP, Robots. It's called Road Regrets, and it's Dan Mangan right here on CITR 101.9 FM. Drive until the gas is gone And then walk until our feet are torn Crawl until we feed the soil Film the whole thing It's all business in left-hand lane Drive there and then drive back again Escape can't be the only way To escape So I've gotten used to coffee sweats Still getting used to road regrets Hell, I took you up on all your threats 
Gentlemen, boys, girls, and everything in between, step right up as the Youth Co. Aid Society proudly presents A Choir Taste, a Carnival of Sensations. On July 9th at 7 p.m., the Big Top Hits Canvas Lounge at 99 Powell Street with a feast of all things circus. Featuring burlesque and belly dancers, drag performers, aerialists, fire spinners, and jugglers. All proceeds from the premier silent auction go to support prevention education in youth impacted by HIV-AIDS. Auction donations and ticket purchases can be handled at www.youthco.org or the YouthCo office downtown. Sponsor a ticket for someone else in true circus style, one night only, July 9th.
Hey, welcome back to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. This week, I sent Melanie Kochsdorf and Zachary Rothman to Vanier Park to check out the opening night of All's Well That Ends Well. The play by William Shakespeare is part of the 20th anniversary season of Bard on the Beach. And here are Melanie and Zach with their review. When you think about summertime in Vancouver, a few activities automatically come to mind. Swimming, suntanning, volleyball, frisbee, barbecues, and torrid love affairs by the light of the moon. And in Vancouver, where we're fortunate enough to live on or near the ocean, the lazy, hazy days and nights of summer are spent for most of us on the beach. But on Vancouver's west side, at Vanier Park, just over the hill and barely visible from the sunny sand dudes of Kitts Beach, are a series of tents clustered together. This is not a military encampment. This is not a protest village, and this thankfully has absolutely nothing to do with the Olympics. The tent village by the seaside is the uniquely stunning venue of Bard on the Beach, Vancouver's own annual summer Shakespeare festival. It is here where Melanie and I had the opportunity to catch All's Well That Ends Well, a tale of love and trickery with more than a few twists of its own. This Shakespeare play is directed by Rachel Ditor, starring Lois Anderson, Craig Erickson, Patty Allen, Scott Bellis, and Duncan Fraser. It's the story of a woman of low social status who saves the king with some medicine, and then she gets a choice of any nobleman, and there's one that she loves, and she chooses him, but then he runs away and says the only way he will ever marry her is if she can get the ring off his finger and have a child by him. And so at first she's devastated, but then she gets into scheming. And then all's well that ends well. This play was written in 1602. It's 400 years old. And when I compare it to the current summer fair, and I'm just going to use the example of Transformers 2, a question comes up in my mind, and that is, which of these is going to last another 400 years? And well, it's anyone's guess, really. For this one, Rachel Ditor was talking with the costume designer, Mara Gottler, and they decided on a Victorian setting, which ended up being really interesting because this play is all about sex, but sex and propriety. The Victorian dress, which is all very refined and repressed, on the outside has that that hidden side underneath, the repressed sexual desire, because their underclothes are very... Um, that's where like all the boudoir stuff comes from, is Victorian dress. So it's very sexy underneath. So there's always that play. So that happens in the costumes, and that happens in the play itself. It's pretty cool. Speaking of settings, the setting of Bard on the Beach itself with the view of the ocean and the stage opening up to the mountains and the sunshine, the boardwalks that connect the venues and, and the bar, uh, all the little public viewing areas, the areas to sit. It's magical. It's such a wonderful way to go and enjoy such a great piece of work, such a well-written piece of work and such a well-executed piece of work. Speaking of the execution of this piece, uh, Rachel Detour, aside from choosing a Victorian setting, she also made a choice which in the history of Bard on the Beach has never been done before, and that was to have the first on-stage love-making scene. For us, we didn't realize that this was unusual, because Shakespeare had given the direction for it to be 
off stage. And this is where the lover, the, the main man, gets duped by the two women who blindfold him and then switch places before they do it. And it seemed natural to have it on stage. Yeah, it, it seemed natural and it seemed... To me, I mean, as natural as the rest of the play seemed, it's it's a very, in, in some ways, contrived plot. But the performance and the execution of the play is natural. And as natural as that one lovemaking scene is, it doesn't feel like sex for sex's sake. Scott Bellis as Parolis, a lascivious dirtbag of a man, he relishes the role, and but he doesn't overplay it. It's It's smug and beautiful and funny. Yeah, they were all very sharp and with it, and I loved the physical comedy that they do so well and really brings Shakespeare to life. So this play isn't actually performed very often, and it's not considered a comedy, although it leans towards comedy. It's not considered a tragedy. It's a problem play, and it's a little bit more complex and not as easy to discern a clear moral or get a clear ending. And it's one of Shakespeare's later works. This is what he started doing. And you kind of need that physical comedy to make the story come alive. I think the actors did a great job. For CITR, I'm Zachary Rothman. And I'm Melanie Cooksdorf. Don't go see Transformers. Thanks, as always, to Melanie and Zach for that fantastic review. Hmm, what do you think? What will last another 400 years? Uh, the Transformers or All's Well That Ends Well? It's a tough one, Zach. I, I'm going to have to think about it and get back to you next week. Actually, I will be going to see another Bard on the Beach uh, offering. This Saturday night, I'll be seeing Richard II, which is not quite as fun or sexual as All's Well That Ends Well was. But um, in case you do want to check it out, All's Well That Ends Well plays Tuesdays through Sundays until September 19th at Vanier Park. And the little message I've got here from both Melanie and Zachary is don't miss it. And yes, please don't see Transformers. Well, I, I, I would hope that uh, none of all of you out there have enough sense to not go out and see Transformers. <laughs> All right, moving right along. Um, the 21st Annual Dancing on the Edge Festival is scheduled from July 9th to 18th, and that's tomorrow, starting tomorrow. And it will continue its legacy of presenting innovative dance and innovative sites. Featuring new works by our vibrant British Columbia dance artists and innovative companies from across the country, the festival artists always push the envelope, taking their art to the edge. Performances will take place in venues throughout the city, from the Fire Hall Arts Centre, the Scotiabank Dance Centre, the Vancouver Playhouse, to innovative and different sites like the Roundhouse Turntable and the Chapel and Library Square. Earlier today, I spoke with Donna Spencer, who is a founding director at the Fire Hall Arts Centre, and she is the producer of the Dancing on the Edge Festival. Here is the conversation we had earlier today. How is the Dancing on the Edge Festival different from Vancouver's other dance festivals? Um, well, it's the oldest. <laughs> Coming in at 21 years this year. Congratulations. Uh, actually, it's quite different. It's um, um, Our festival has a lot of involvement from um, local artists and national artists. Um, uh, we have a flamenco festival, which focuses on flamenco. We have the Vancouver International Dance Festival, which tends to bring in full-length work from outside of the country. Um, and I'm sure there are other dance festivals. I think there's a tap festival as well. But 
uh, Dancing on the Edge is essentially a, a contemporary dance festival, using the word of contemporary dance in quite a broad sense, um, expanding it to mean not just contemporary art, but also work that's happening in contemporary society. So we have a wide range of, um, some years we have ballet, this year we don't have any contemporary ballet, but we've had a wide range of kinds of, of, of dance. And um, we also, I guess the other difference perhaps is that we tend to do uh, what we call the edges, which are mixed programs, which give artists the opportunity to show small 20-minute um, works. Some works are as short as five minutes, mm-hmm. and um, it gives the artist an opportunity to show it shorter works from their repertoire, but it also gives the audiences a chance to get samplings of of some of the different work that's going on. So there might be five pieces on a program, and um, audience members tend to love these because they get a little bit of, of they get a very diverse mix of work. <laughs> Definitely. So going back 21 years ago, what was it that inspired you to start this festival? Why was there a need? At that point, uh, 21 years ago, there was really, there was no Vancouver Dance Center. There was uh, very little dance presentation going on in Vancouver, period. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we were getting lots of requests from the dance community for an opportunity to have their work shown. So it was really the volume of requests from the artists, the fact that Every discipline had a festival except for dance. Um, So there were a number of reasons. In the first couple of years, we um, basically tried to do... uh, We functioned kind of like a fringe festival in that we would take applications and it was kind of first come, first serve, and we tried to get as many people on the stage as possible. We've pulled back from that very soon into the festival's history, probably around the fourth or fifth year, and started doing a curation um, of the event. Um, but it was really about need. It was, and, it, and now, 21 years later, there are lots of, um, pres- more, well, not lots, there are more dance presenters out there and more multidisciplinary presenters that are presenting dance, which is great. Um, and I think that's partially to do with the fact that The Edge has been here showcasing our artists and showcasing Canadian artists, and presenters have been coming and seeing how audiences respond to dance and going, hey, maybe I should, you know, book a dance show. Or mm-hmm. So that happens every year. Uh, like this year, we'll have about 10 presenters who will be in seeing work. Excellent. That, it touches on a question I wanted to ask a, a little later, but I, I might as well ask it now. I'm wondering how the audience has changed over time. I mean, if people weren't seeing this diverse mix of contemporary dance and also outside of the regular theater establishment, how have the audiences sort of changed over time? Are they, are they, uh, is Vancouver's dance audience grown? Have they changed a lot over the time? Um, I th- I think, I mean, I, I think there's a, uh, certainly there's a segment of our, of the Dancing on the Edge audience that is um, much more, um, uh, has much more awareness of, of, of dance and more engagement with dance. There's people that have been coming to the festival almost since the beginning right. that are still coming. Um, I, I, I have the perception that Vancouver dance audiences, that the numbers have increased, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a very, um, the dance audience is pretty loyal, and if they love dance, they tend to try to see as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't actually have any statistics. I mean, with us, the festival fluctuates in terms of attendance, and that's partially because of the, every year the the um, festival does sort of a different lineup for this year. Actually, we've got one piece that started a month before, well, June 18th, mm-hmm. June 19th. 
Um, so our audience fluctuates depending on how many site works we have, really. Uh, the theater audience goes up and down depending on whether people like the shows or not. Right. So I guess I have two questions out of that. Um, first is that, do you have a, a specific theme or a goal that changes from year to year in terms of who you accept and who you bring from across the country? This year I noticed there's lots of um, Montreal choreographers and dancers brought in, as well as people from Saskatchewan and other places. Um, is there a specific goal or a theme this year that differs from previous years? Um, no. Um, our, our, I, mean, our main, I mean, our very simplified mandate is to uh, produce a festival that provides affordable uh, opportunities for audiences to see dance from artists that are local, regional, national, and international. We have not done any, we don't have any international artists this year, but we had international artists last year. And so it all, it depends on whose work is out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've never said, okay, this is the year that we're going to always, we're going to do pieces that are focusing on a specific theme. Uh, we've never really done that. We've pretty well responded to what the artists have, have said they want to create work about as opposed to saying I'm only going to buy shows that look like this or right. talk about that. Right. Well, you also mentioned Paul Andre Fortier's uh, performance 30 by 30, which has been out in Library Square since June 18th. Um, do you find that, I mean, what has the response to that been? I'm sure there's lots of people that just happen upon him at 5.15 on weekdays and have no idea that this is part of the Dancing on the Edge Festival. But I'm sure there's also a number of people, like you said, that loyal dancing audience that that actually goes out to see him and to see this work. Yeah, we've had, with that piece, we've got a few people um, that are regulars that are seeing it, you know, a couple of times a week. Mm -hmm. um, there's one person that I think has seen about 13 performances. Wow. Um, now, yes, you're absolutely right. People happen upon it, and because it's, it's, he's, it's he's a contemporary artist, mm -hmm. it's not a piece that's designed in the sense of being very accessible it's about a piece of work him determined to to challenge himself to create a work that can happen anywhere in the city mm -hmm. <laughs> um and uh uh i guess for us how they find out it's to do with dancing on the edge i mean we do have a dis uh, display board there and we, our our volunteers are giving out pamphlets and things so mm -hmm. people do get that connection but my interest in doing it is was really we have presented Paul Andre at the Playhouse. We've presented them here at the Fire Hall. His work is, um, for me, well, I guess for me, his work is, is is challenging work, but it's challenging in that it makes you go sit and go, okay, this man, obviously at 61 years of age, is still a, a, a very strong mover. He has a vision. He wants to put his work in places that will challenge audiences. So we see people walk by and, you know, they'll try to do what he does, and they go, oh, my gosh, that actually takes skill yes, <laughs> to the point that la yesterday yeah. I was there in the pouring rain and mm. a young man came up beside behind me and said oh that old man can sure dance <laughs> and I went yes he can <laughs> yes he certainly can <laughs> so it's really about trying I think Paul Andre's goal with the piece is to take the work to where the uh, audiences are mm -hmm. uh, and to say you know I go to work I'm going to work every day and this is my work Right. Um, and it's fascinating because it, the fact that he is doing it every day for 30 days, people go, 
yes, uh, this artist is working. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the fact that it probably changes every day depending on who is there and what the weather is like and and just as as any like uh, normal job, even like an assembly line, regardless of the fact that you might be going through the same motions, every day is different, everything is tempered by that specific time and place and who you're with. Well, I was speaking with his rehearsal director because I came up walked up to see it from a different angle and um, I was talking about well, his energy seems to be up in the top part of his body today mm-hmm. and she said well you know that it does shift it obviously shifts he's doing similar movements but the energy depending on his mood what's going on around him I mean of course it affects him very much also the angle that you see the work from mm-hmm. I mean we've had uh, lots of photographers who just walk and they view it as a moving sculpture and they right. walk around it and they're taking pictures of it and posting them on the blog and it's fascinating to watch it's fascinating watching the people mm-hmm. watch the piece have you considered putting it in different places around the city? Um, we certainly talked about that a bit because it was very difficult to find um, a location that was available for 30 days in a row. Yeah. But his um, his take on it and uh, was that he really wanted it to be in the same location so people going by there regularly would see him and see that see his commitment to doing the work and and engage in some way and in the other cities that he's done it in he's always done it um in the same location right well it's at a perfect time as well 5:15, just after everyone gets let out of work typically in the downtown core so i'm sure he's getting quite a large audience well it varies i mean yesterday and there there were i was surprised how many people were there with umbrellas watching and it was really raining yeah <laughs> Well, last, the last thing I wanted to ask about regarding the Dancing on the Edge Festival is the uh, the dialogues that you're that you're also fostering. It's called Eat, and it's happening on July 16th at the Alibi Room. Why is it important? Well, you're bringing together dancers from across the city and across the country to dance together. But why is it important also to to foster a conversation to to bring a, more of a a dialogue into this festival? I think, uh, well, we've always had post-show kind of discussions with audiences, and we've had workshops on various aspects of the business of dance um, over the years. And and this year, um, a group, the Vancouver Dance Managers, approached me with the idea of that they wanted to do have a conversation during the festival. And so we talked about but what that meant. Mm-hmm. And they said basically they wanted to have something that would stimulate them as dance managers and would stimulate the dancers and the choreographers and that it didn't they didn't really want it to be about how to sell your show or how to advocate for more money for the arts. Mm-hmm. So we started to talk about why people create work and that that's where the ego art territory came from was really basically about is art created from one's ego or where does it come from if you is it yours mm-hmm. <laughs> um who who owns um, one of the possible interesting discussions will be the, the idea of territory um of and not just ge- geographic which is an issue or cultural appropriation of work mm-hmm. uh, but also uh the idea of virtual territory now um, absolutely and 
territory of uh, if you are a company that does a certain kind of work and then somebody down the street decides to do exactly the same work, how does that connect? So I think it's going to be quite an interesting discussion. Yes, no, I'm really looking forward to attending it. I think that there's lots of there's lots of issues that come up, and I think it will be really accessible for even not the typical dance uh, person yeah. because many people will go to a dance performance, whether it be the ballet or a flamenco performance or or step dancing and wonder where the impetus or where the inspiration came for these movements and why it moves people the way it does. And well, and, and art, uh, artists are being asked all the time to explain what they want to do in, when they do proposals for funding or for films or whatever, and how, 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 do, they, how, how do they explain something that's so... Ephemeral. It's, Ephemeral. It's like breathing. How do you explain why you need to breathe? Or and when you're writing those things, do you write from a first pers- first person perspective, or do you write from an outside eye so that you can actually sort of put yourself in more of an objective place? I mean, it, those are or and then you see somebody having great success with a certain kind of something that they want to use in their production, do you start using that too because they've had success? I mean, it, it, I think it'll be really quite stimulating. And what's interesting is we have not asked any dancers to, or choreographers to be on the panel. Mm. They're, they're actually not, no, they're people that go to dance, but they're not dance, dance people. So they'll right. be coming at this from their own artistic perspectives. Well, hopefully the audience will be full of dancers and oh, yeah. people involved in the industry. Oh, yeah, and whoever else wants to come. I mean, it was really to stimulate a discussion about art and how it's created. Wonderful. From your perspective, what is what is the piece de resistance for the fe- the Dancing on the Edge Festival this year? Oh, my. <laughs> well, there are a number, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think there are... Uh, every show is going to have... Um, uh, something wonderful about it. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, the two pieces that I'm, well, one of them that I'm very keen on is uh, When We Dances 365 at the Vancouver Playhouse. Mm-hmm. This is a Vancouver choreographer who's receiving um, a lot of positive response internationally on from his work. It's a work that has been shown in Vancouver before. It was shown at the Vancouver East Cultural Center, but it's very sen- seldom that Vancouver artists get a chance to use the Playhouse stage, so I think people, sh- even if they saw it at, at the Cult, they should try to get out to see it at the Playhouse because it'll feel very different. And his his work, he's the choreographer, I believe, who is um, going to be doing being the choreographer for the operas um, Nixon in China. Piece. Oh, wonderful! Which is part of the Cultural Olympics yeah. this year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Excellent. And then the other uh, group that I think is really an exciting group are the 605 Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, the festival was able to provide them, we, we received some monies to be able to provide them with a residency and help because they're a, a young company that doesn't have a lot of funding. Mm-hmm. So we were able to get them some money to develop their work. And they're a company that they're all trained in various aspects of dance, but they're sort of known for their urban dance style. And they premiere a new work um, the closing weekend of the festival. Fantastic. And that one's called Audible. That's right. All right, well, Donna Spencer, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm really looking forward to this festival. It looks like it's going to be an amazing time from July 9th to 18th. Um, So I encourage everyone out there to to head on down, and thank you again, Donna. And I hope you have fun. I will, (laughs) and I hope everyone else will as well. Okay. Okay, have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
The 21st annual Dancing on the Edge Festival is scheduled from July 9th to 18th at various locations around Vancouver. And if you want to check out tickets or find out more about the festival, go to www.dancingontheedge.org. That was my conversation with Donna Spencer, the producer of the festival, and I thank her so much for speaking with me earlier today. Street hog tempts the huntress, let the girls go insane as we lay down our weapons and sure enough, we are slain by that stuff. Come check out Vancouver's very own destroyer playing Friday, July 17th. Hosted at the Biltmore, located at 395 Kingsway, the Shilohs and Attic Sellers join Destroyer for an evening of acoustic ear candy. Doors beckon at 8, tickets available at Redcat, Zulu, Highlife and online at ticketweb.ca. Come join our hometown troubadour Destroyer, Friday, July 17th. You in white and me in grey go well tonight. So let's linger here. This used to be my favourite palm tree. I was starving in that shit house the world. Welcome back to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm kind of left high and dry here, actually, this evening. I was expecting Jordi Yao, the editor of The Discorder, to come in and uh, chat with me a little bit about the new format. For those of you who don't know, Discorder has gone from a full sort of broadsheet-looking paper to a more zine-style carry-in-your-purse little... um, music rag, but it's still packed with all the best music info, news, reviews, interviews, and everything else you've come to expect from the wonder that is Discorder. And I last weekend, last Wednesday, I believe it was, at the Astoria, there was the official launch of the new format and the new website. So if you head to the Discorder website, I believe it's www.discorder.ca. Well, if you put Discorder into Google, it's the first thing that comes up. Thank God. Um, so check it out. There's a lot. It's a lot more accessible than the old one. The calendar is online, so you can find out what shows are happening everywhere around town every weekday night and weekend, of course. Um, yeah, but Jordy's not here. Uh, I, I think I probably deserve this. I kind of um, eked out of a review I was supposed to do for Discorder a few months ago, so perhaps this is my just desserts. But it actually leaves me some time to just chat with you out there about uh, some of the goings-on. I know a couple of weeks ago, when I wasn't actually in studio, I mentioned that the Polaris Music Prize nominees for 2009 had been announced. That was the long list, and it included 50 bands from across Canada. Really excellent choices. And as of, I believe, Tuesday of this week, the short list was announced. That's the 10 uh, bands and albums that are nominated for the fourth annual $20,000 Polaris Music Award, which goes to artists for completely artistic merit and not about records sold. It's about innovative and interesting new albums. And the list this year, in case you haven't heard, includes Elliot Brood, uh, Effed Up, the Great Lake Swimmers, Hey Rosetta, Kanon, Malajub, Metric, Joel Plaskett, Chad Van Galen, and Patrick Watson. Now, I, uh, from what I've been hearing, the buzz going about is that many people think that this is quite a safe list, and music is not my forte. I'm more into the arts in general, <laughs> as you can well imagine. But, um,. I kind of agree. Uh, Most of these bands I've heard of before, which means that they have a little more press coverage than, let's say, um, who won last year? Uh, Melody Day. uh, What's his name? Oh, it's 
escaping me right now, but Patrick Watson won a few years ago, and then ugh, the first year. Well, I mean, these bands, Malajube, were they've been nominated before, Chad Van Galen, Joel Plaskett. I mean, these are familiar names to anyone who's ha even has a little bit of a pulse on the Canadian music scene. So I wonder whether or not they could have been a little more... Mm, avant-garde with their selections. Not to say that these aren't amazing artis artists who are well-deserving of an award or five. Um, but I'm just going to be honest here and throw my hat in the ring and say that I really do hope that um, Metric gets the award um, for a really non-musical reason. It's a gender reason. Um, it's because... For the last couple of years, it's always been a, a man or a, a single male singer or a, a group composed of mainly males that have won the Polaris Music Prize, even though uh, there's been lots of wonderful females nominated. I believe um, Basha Bulat was nominated, among others. And um, I'd just like to see a little more Femcon out there in the in the award category. So uh, I'm throwing my hat in the ring for Metric um, and their album Fantasies. Um, yeah, so Polaris, hooray, that's all going to be announced in September, I believe, I, September 16th may be the day, um, but let's hope that uh, it turns out to be a, an excellent award, and uh, I'm glad to know the nominees are out there. Uh, the last thing I want to bring up on the show before I play one song to lead us out today is um, that 3084, the... Um, the, how do I describe this? 3084 is the project self-storage unit that I spoke to you of a couple of weeks ago. Um, the idea is that this storage space for materialized ideas and ideated materials complicates the dialects of waste and conservation and the commodif commodification of storage space. And um, this space has been hosting a number of Vancouver artists over the past couple of weeks, and it's an interesting way to get inside of what is a very experimental um, new uh, way of experiencing art. And uh, this weekend is the last weekend that it's going to be on. And it's a by appointment only, except for July 9th. There's a public viewing from 6.45 p.m. to 7 p.m. with an escort to the lo secret location. And if you want more information, you can check out www.3084.ca. And uh, this last final week of the 3084 program, Kathleen Ritter is concluding the project with a response drawing on the layered echoes of desire that resonate throughout the self-storage facility, a container for tightly rationalized zones of erasure that, for many reasons, increasing numbers of people want. Through its corridors and walls, girders and shutters doors, cinema carries, sound carries, excuse me, and agitation of bound materials, resolving a branded spatial economy, creaks and uh, creaks of tension, compression, suspension, distant motors briefly engaged, the hum of electric lights, these sounds can be unsettling. It's no coincidence that music is a listed feature of this carefully planned service, piped through the hallways, softening hard edges and burying strange vibrations. It's important that people feel safe, comfortable, and never alone. And uh, that's, that's the description of Kathleen Ritter's Never Alone, that her piece that will be showcased in the 3084 
short-term storage for materialized ideas and ideated materials. Um, this is the last weekend of this very innovative project, and I encourage you to check it out. Um, you have to contact the people at 3084 for location, registration, appointments, and further information. It's running from the 9th to the 12th, and I hope you all get out there and check it out. I went to an earlier one, and it was super cool. So check it out, www.3084.com. Uh, .ca, excuse me. And so that brings me to another episode of uh, The Arts Report here on CITR. I'm going to leave you with that fantastic um, song that Dan Mangan is so wonderful at singing. Uh, It's called Robots Need Love Too. And I'm going to send it out to all of you out there in the CITR world. I hope you have a safe and happy weekend. I will see you right back here on The Arts Report next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Until then, take care of yourself. Drop me a line at arts at citr.ca, and I'll see you on the flip side. Take care. I don't know what you've been told. I don't get out much these days Waking young and feeling old The days are no longer my own To piss away the waking hours But don't, 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 don't to be loved by you 
They want to be loved by you They want to be loved by you 